this is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Okay folks, David Jameson here, uh, joined by my co-editor at Contra, uh, Jonathan Chaffee. Uh, we were both of us on protest this weekend. Jonathan, I think, spoke at the demonstration in Glasgow. I was just marching on the demonstration in London, the biggest demonstration uh, for Palestine solidarity in British history. Um, And it's claimed uh, a scalp. Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, of course, uh, threatened or tried to push for the Metropolitan Police to ban the demonstration. Uh, She ostentatiously failed got into a big argument with the Met and has now been sacked by the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Um, Just one of many developments at Westminster today. But first of all, Jonathan, um, what's the significance of this moment, especially with regards to Suella Braverman? Well, I think there's a few things to say. First of all, there is um, obviously pre-existing multidimensional divisions within the Tory party. And these are extensive, um, they're deep, um, and they are animated. Um, there is no sense of there being any real coherence inside the Tory party, but that's not new. Um, this is most profoundly uh, visible uh, after Brexit, um, where there's a shock to the political system. And we've always argued that the mainstream of British capitalism um, was always opposed to Brexit. So it created a rupture, really, between the Tory party and its natural allies in the CBI, the city, and so on. Um, And of course, that weaves its way through to the end of Boris Johnson, the Liz Trust disaster. Rishi Sunak comes in. Of course, he's not voted, not by the public, obviously, but not voted even by the Tory party membership. And there's this uneasy feeling around the party about how it balances the various competing Um, factions within it. Um, And of course, that has particular importance because the Tory party historically has been the party of capital, the primary organ through which uh, the British state wants to conduct its political affairs. So what we've had with Braverman um, over the last number of weeks are increasingly outlandish statements, um, not just about the demonstrations, about the way she's spoken about them, hate marches and so on, but other outlandish uh, statements, things like uh, homelessness being a lifestyle choice, the removal of tents from homeless people, all this sort of thing. And so there was a view that what Braverman was doing was sort of goading uh, Rishi Sunak and that really either way would be a positive outcome for her. Option one, She's not sacked, but she is in a position which is holding Rishi Sunak's feet to the fire as far as the right of the Tory party are concerned. And if she does get fired, then, okay, she's got some kind of platform through which to build a future leadership uh, campaign inside the Tory party. But what I think is crucial about the timing and the manner of her departure is that it comes on the back of her attempts to ban the demonstrations that took place at the weekend. Now, it's important that we're clear about this. You know, if you go to these demonstrations and you hear Suella Braverman say, um, okay, we want to ban this demonstration, ban this hate march, whatever, um, it's quite easy for those of us who just turn up to basically say, well, we're going to defy that, we're going to go along. 
But the organisations which formally called the demonstration would have come under substantial pressure, uh, not just from Suella Braverman, but you'll recall the Met Police also asked the organisers to reconsider or to postpone uh, Saturday's demonstration, and they didn't do that. And so by not doing that, by turning out uh, hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets of London, as you say, the biggest demonstration for Palestine in this uh, country's history, then you have to say that going from calling for demonstrations to be banned, then to uh, losing uh, her position, to being sacked uh, as Home Secretary, then that is indeed a clear victory uh, for, for the movement. Um, and it will be viewed as such, by the way, by lots of people across the political spectrum. Her column in the Times, uh, I think, was probably the, the final straw for many, even within the British establishment, who have some idea, who historically have had some idea about how to manage these kinds of crises. And Sarah Braverman's not managed to. The leadership, the institutions of the anti-war movement stood up to the pressure. We delivered on the streets. And now she's gone. And I think that that means that the movement is now in a position of confidence that we will march uh, and that we won't be deterred from doing so by anyone, whether that's Sir Braverman or James Cleverly. Yeah, it's a very interesting moment in British history as well, because the sorts of games that Suella Braverman was playing through that Times article that accused the police of going soft on uh, left-wing protesters and also, she kind of implies, soft on Muslims. Um, you know, that type of language, alleging a conspiracy in the police force on the side of the left, these are the sorts of um, rhetorical tropes that you expect in the history of the kind of radical right in parts of the European continent. You don't usually see this sort of thing in, in British politics, where there's a very clear breakdown in harmony and cohesion between different parts of the ruling elite. So you had a very strange situation, and I'm not saying that the Metropolitan Police are trustworthy in any regard, but I did note that on the day of the demonstration, when um, you know Braverman's thugs did indeed materialise in the streets and disrupt the remembrance um, uh, events and then started physically attacking the police, you could read the, the Metropolitan Police Force's tweets and they were saying, basically, we're having no trouble from... Um, the pro-Palestine demonstration, we are having trouble from the far right. Now, that's purely contingent, right? <laughs> the police will also turn on the uh, pro-Palestine uh, movement as well. But clearly, they were having a shadow box with the Home Secretary, right? Clearly, the Metropolitan Police was lashing back out at the Home Secretary. And you can speculate that that comes not just from the senior ranks of police officers who must have been scandalised by that Times article, but probably from rank-and-file police officers as well who felt insulted and that they, they'd been denigrated in the press. Um, so, um, I mean, what do you think these very apparent splits in the Tory party in other institutions in the state, I mean, let's not forget the Times is itself supposed to be the journal of the British ruling class. And then, of course, in the Labour Party, there are just as kind of explosive splits. Uh, a member of the Shadow Cabinet has resigned. The leaders of the Labour Party in the Welsh and, and Scottish parliaments have called for 
um, a ceasefire. Numerous high-ranking Labour Party officials and mayors and so on have now called for uh, a ceasefire. What what do all of these schisms tell us about the various parts of the British establishment? Well, a number of things. Um, but firstly, it's probably worth pointing out that serious political arguments being made in opposition to a ceasefire, uh, I think, are absent. Um, I don't think there's anyone making a really properly thought out and concerted attempt at providing some kind of popular moniker for the idea that we should oppose a ceasefire, that what's happening in Gaza should continue um, as is. And so what that's done, because they can't take on the argument politically, is they've had to find ways in which to displace the and to do and to de, de, contort the de, 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 de discussion. And they've done that in a number of ways. So it's interesting that they've put the cenotaph to the to the centre of things. Symbols matter in, in politics. And if you can't galvanize the population around a leading political personality, certainly they can't do that with, with Rishi Sunak, or indeed with the governing institutions as a whole. You search for other symbols that might um, find some uh, some kind of success in that kind of mission. And so they've reached for the cenotaph. But what's been interesting about it is that, as you point out, the people who were rioting, the people who were fighting with police down in Whitehall were not anything to do with the march for the ceasefire. They were everything to do with the kind of people that Suella Braverman whipped up. And I think for many people across the political spectrum, that was uh, a line uh, that was crossed. That was a step too far uh, over the breach. But you're right to point out that the deeper question here, the more profound politics at work, is they don't have an answer over the question of Gaza that can properly repudiate what the people on the streets are saying. And not just the people on the streets. You pointed out a number of organizations you know it's easy to characterize this as a kind of left-right split and you know there's no denying that the left are a, a big part of the mobilizing power of these demonstrations that's true but when you have the editorial board of the financial times also calling for a ceasefire when you have the archbishop of canterbury um, and let's make no bones about this he's an individual whose job is effectively to ensure that the line of the status quo um, is, is generally speaking protected. So the fact that you have all of these people uh, speaking out for a ceasefire really isolates, really exposes the position of both Rishi Sunak and indeed um, Keir Starmer. And we know the reason why this is. Neither of those leaders will ever deviate from the line that's been put in Washington. They will not deviate from American foreign policy positions. And that's because the British state is a vassal state. That is its function within the global system. It doesn't have an independent foreign policy. It doesn't have the ability to navigate a situation like the Middle East without simply parroting the words of whoever the president happens to be, whether that's George Bush over Iraq or whether that's Joe Biden over Gaza. And so this tension is being massively exposed it is being exposed to the extent that they've given up on providing any real politics around it. What they've been determined to do is to divide the movement, to fragment it, to repress it, to lie about it. And all of those things, I think, have been repudiated by both the leadership 
uh, of the movement and Stop the War Coalition, Palestine Solidarity Campaign, CND, but also the hundreds of thousands of ordinary people that have taken to the streets. So there's a very broad coalition calling for that basic demand. And it is, by the way, a basic demand, which is ceasefire now. And I think it's irresistible. Uh, and I have to say, Sunak and Keir Starmer, they've ran out of road when it comes to credibility on this issue. They ran out of road in the first 24 hours with some of the statements that they had made over the siege of Gaza. But now they are simply puppets on a string waiting for the White House to call for some kind of restraint. And uh, and that's what they'll do. So it's our job to continue to build the pressure on them. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also, I mean, I think the point about the lack of an independent foreign policy is crucial. I mean, it's why in the press, and many, particularly on the right of the press, have completely lost the plot uh, in the last few yeah. weeks. It's become routine for columnists to allege that the protests um, are absolutely full of anti-Semites, that the protests are themselves organised by Hamas. That's an attitude that's being put around in print, right, with no evidence, obviously, whatsoever um, to back it up. Um, but it's not just a question, I think, of um, a lack of leadership at the top of the British state. What I find fascinating is, I mean, we, we had that poll early on that said 76% of the British public supported a ceasefire, only 88, only 8% opposed, and of them, only 3% were determined in their opposition. I'd be interested to see a poll on that now, frankly. I think it would show an even larger, an overwhelming majority for um, an immediate ceasefire. But people also rightly said, and I think it's worth bearing in mind, that does not mean that 76% of the population are, you know, um, radical kind of pro-Palestinian, Palestine solidarity type people, right? But even if you look at the polls that qualify that picture, they make grim reading for the propagandists, for American foreign policy, and for the actions of the Israeli state. So there's a poll out, for example, that shows that about one in three Britons actively considers themselves on the side of the Palestinians. One in three, which is in itself absolutely remarkable, by the way. And it's a consequence of about 20 or 30 years of a steadily mounting movement for solidarity with Palestine. About a quarter of people see themselves as basically on the side uh, of the Israeli state in Britain. And about 45% of the population, the remaining 45%, don't know, right? But then you have to consider that in collaboration with the 76% who support a ceasefire. That means that, of course, the entire third who are pro-Palestine um, are in favour of a ceasefire. It means that most of the 45% who don't know uh, also support a ceasefire. And it even means that some of the quarter of the population who see themselves as broadly pro-Israeli state, are in favour of a ceasefire. So in other words, the movement has conducted the manoeuvre in public opinion, which is the kind of holy grail. You've consolidated a radical minority, you have hegemonised the fence-sitters, and you're even making inroads into the kind of hard-right position in the country. That, I think, demonstrates why they are in so much trouble at the top of society. They can't find a base. And what's also incredible is, in trying to bring about a street-level manifestation for the defence of 
British foreign policy and American foreign policy in the Israeli state, the only people who answered that call are a very thin layer of increasingly demented journalists and the Tommy Robinson type EDL um, sort of drunken, violent rabble. Yes. Now, you're right to point out, because look, we need to be honest about the situation as well, right? So that 76% or whatever it was of people who want a ceasefire, within that there are all kinds of views about the Middle East. I think one thing that has been so obviously lacking throughout this entire time has been any form of high-level public debate about the issues. Um, I was doing a podcast recently for The National in which I said, look, we welcome debate. There should be debate. It's only natural that people are going to have disagreements about this. And, and actually, those disagreements are going to be passionately held. But we can't point to any serious programming of debates uh, around this. I remember if you go back to the time of the movement against the Iraq war, I mean, question time forums were... Uh, we'd have Tony Benn on, they'd also have um, pro-war advocates on, there would be some semblance of public debate. The standard of writing that comes from these columnists um, is absolutely petulant. I mean, they are behaving like some sort of child having uh, you know, a tantrum and lashing out because they can't deal with the situation in a political way. So let's have the political debate. Let's have the political argument, right? But let's do it in a way that is mature and which allows for people to come to some kind of understanding about what their beliefs are. Because what they are being told right now um, is far from is far from anything that we would understand to be an informed discussion and debate on the matter. And that's why these kind of characters that you see in the right-wing press and parts of the liberal press they have nothing to say about the concrete issues in the Middle East. So what they can do is to try and throw uh, some kind of smear operation against uh, a mass movement of people. And in doing so, they're increasingly disconnected from reality. I keep coming back to it. mainstream parts of this society support a ceasefire, not just um, individual MPs and so on, but the First Minister, the Mayor of London. We could go on. And serious publications. Uh, like the Financial Times, who have already referenced, also support it. So it's not the case that there isn't a credible argument for a ceasefire, as some people have tried to argue. In fact, there's not a credible credible argument against one. And that's why they're not making the argument. They're choosing to divert the discussion into other matters. Um, but I think it's also worth saying, David, that, look, yes, there has been a movement that has been maintained around the question of Palestine, to one extent or another, over the last number of decades. But there is a wider foreign policy dynamic uh, taking place here. People have seen what happened in Iraq. They've seen the disaster and the humiliation in many ways of what happened in Afghanistan. They've seen what's become of Libya. They have looked, and people aren't stupid, they've looked at what's happened and they've decided the people who run American foreign policy, de facto who run the foreign policy of the British state, do not know what they are doing, unleash catastrophes that are sanitised in this country, right? but they are grave, they involve the destruction of millions of people's lives, of widespread destabilisation in the global system, and they've thought to themselves that actually, no, this is not what we want to be involved in. We don't want to be involved in collective punishment in Gaza. We don't want to be involved in the occupation, the brutal occupation, by the way, of Iraq. We don't want Tony Blair 
to make a return as some kind of envoy in the Middle East talking about humanitarian reconstruction or whatever words uh, they're going to use. You know, these things have been a failure. And so I think there's an overlap between what's happening in Gaza and all these other foreign policy questions where people have said, war is not the answer. This kind of um, approach has failed. And I think one of the reasons why Stop the War Coalition is so uh, hated by the establishment in Britain is because it is consistently proven correct. It refuses to deviate, no matter how much pressure it takes, no matter how much it is demonised over any question uh, when it regards foreign policy. Everyone, in the end, has to come round and agree that Stop the War Coalition's position on any major foreign policy question has been absolutely accurate. The problem is, and it's a grave problem, is that there's only this realisation, there's only this consensus after the damage has been done, after the civilians have been killed, after the oil depots have been privatised, after Gaza has been flattened. And so what we are saying is that listen to us, listen to us now, don't delay any longer, we want a ceasefire, and we're not going to have our democratic rights trampled over. And actually, we've got a bit of institutional strength now that's going to say, look, attack us. But in the end, we're going to be convinced of our opinion. We're going to make it known peacefully. We're going to make it known democratically. We're going to pursue strong political arguments, welcome debate, indeed robust debate. But this is the way that you have to handle these important issues. And the Tory party, and increasingly the political class as a whole, they behave as if they're columnists. You know, they behave as if they're writing uh, columns or articles for the Daily Mail or, or whoever, whoever else. They don't behave as if they are um, staffing the great offices of the, the British state. I mean, whatever you say about the British ruling class going back over previous decades, they did at least take their own role within the British state system uh, with a level of seriousness. Now, we would, of course, be on the opposing side of, of, of many of those. But that level of interaction with the public, with the uh, functions of the, of the of the British state and so on, that's just completely gone. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a part of the establishment, just in closing, I think there's a part of the, a big part of the British establishment who look at Sela Braverman, who look at these kind of characters and think all they are bringing is chaos. Liz Truss, chaos. Brexit, chaos, right? And you and I both agree with leaving the EU, but we'll put that to one side, right? And they've said to themselves, look, this is not how we're going to be able to hold this society together. And they're right. They're not going to be able to hold it together with likes of Sela Braverman at the helm. Uh, I think they're on their way out, the Tories. I mean, I don't think that's controversial. Uh, but but there are substantial problems that, um, that, that are going to affect the Labour Party, which we might discuss uh, over the question of Gaza and foreign policy more generally as well. Um, you mentioned the the touted return of Tony Blair to be some kind of um, Middle East peace envoy, one of the most reviled men uh, in the region. I mean, you know, the pundits and politicians who are touting this are nothing if not arrogant and out of touch. But another person who has returned is uh, David Cameron. And as you were mentioning, I mean, David Cameron's, he's probably, you know, alongside austerity, um, which has so hollowed out the public services um, and the capacity of the state capacity of the British state. Um, And yes, of course, he'll be remembered as well, of course, for holding and losing the um, Brexit referendum. But there's got to be, if there's a third, um, 
you know, significance to his time in office. It's surely the destruction of Libya, um, which had so many consequences for European politics, um, which has completely destroyed. I mean, it's probably the most destroyed country after um, after Iraq, um, led to widespread destabilization in uh, North Africa, which is still having consequences. It's still part of what's driving, for example, pro-French governments out of parts of um, the Sahel. Um, but you know he's arrived back. He's not even an MP. He's not a lord. He's not. He's not even a politician in the British system. But he's been selected as yet another kind of Jeremy Hunt type figure who's supposed to bring stability um, back into British politics. But he's one of the great architects in the last ten years of the instability in British politics. I mean, what's going on here? The guy's not an MP. Yeah. Look. There hasn't been a moment like this in British politics for a very long time. And you can make that statement numerous times over the last few years, right, on any number of questions. But the idea that David Cameron should be brought into this role at this time, he's not an MP, given his track record on foreign policy matters, especially Libya, this is an act of extreme desperation. And it is extreme, because basically what they've said is there is not a single elected Tory MP who they believe can do the job. They've had to go back to David Cameron. I mean, it is astonishing that this is uh, unfolding. Libya is glossed over in this country, but the destruction that took place there the consequences of it are utterly catastrophic. You know, how on earth can we continue down this line with this kind of approach to foreign policy? It's not just beyond people like us. It's beyond, I think, the vast majority of the population. And there doesn't seem to ever be any kind of holding to account for any of these things. So Tony Blair, who unleashes hell in Iraq and elsewhere, uh, being brought back in to uh, potentially take this role on in, in, in the Middle East. I mean, people must just look at that and think, what in the hell is going on here? And they'd be right to do so. I mean, when I see Tony Blair uh, in these kinds of roles, I'm always reminded of, of people like Gordon Gentle. You know, young man sent off to war on a pack of lies, lost his life. His mother, Rose Gentle, then undertook a courageous campaign to try and hold um, Tony Blair to account. But it just doesn't happen. You know, they're going to have to be at some point a serious accounting for all these people for their role in breaking international law. You know, it's not us saying international law has been broken. We are not making some panacea of international law. But what we're saying is that at a base level, you cannot have the inclination that global institutions like the UN or anyone else have got any sort of meaning unless. When crimes are taking place, they are prosecuted. Now, there's going to have to be a real discussion about this in our society. There's going to have to be a movement developed around it because this is something that has to happen. Um, you know, this can't go on uh, in this way. And it's just fascinating to me that, you know, the Tory party, the British establishment as a whole, they are so disconnected from the population 
I was having a, a debate on Twitter with some recently, just shortly, David. Um, and they were saying, you know, you're saying all this stuff about Keir Starmer, yeah? And, uh, you know, the position he's taken over Gaza and how's a disgrace and so on. But look at the opinion polls. Labour are still on track for a, an overwhelming victory and Keir Starmer will be Prime Minister and you'll all be forgotten about. Okay, well, look, let's just take that for a moment, right? Um, I'm not saying that Keir Starmer is not going to be Prime Minister. He is going to be. What I'm saying is there is an epoch-defining moment that is taking place right now and it is going to have domestic consequences. They're already visible. Keir Starmer, um, if and when he becomes uh, Prime Minister, is going to have this hanging over him. And by the way, this, this is a protracted issue, the question of foreign policy, not just in the Middle, Middle East, but across the board. And he's already disconnected from millions of people who now indelibly link him to the crimes taking place in Gaza. So yes, he's going to be Prime Minister. Tony Blair was Prime Minister after the invasion of Iraq, but it came to define him, and it's going to come to define Keir Starmer. What we have to think about, and I'd be interested in your views about this, is what kind of a system do we have when the overwhelming majority of the population, where all of the countries are a large number, uh, large parts of the countries, um, civic uh, bodies, trade union bodies, etc., etc., all call for a ceasefire, where the Welsh Parliament calls for one, where the Scottish First, First Minister calls for one, you know, the list goes on. And yet at the top of these parties in the Tory party and in the Labour Party, you just have this authoritarian approach, which doesn't consider these arguments, doesn't reveal an ounce even of the human compassion that you would expect or hope for from a political uh, leadership. And, you know, they're they're choosing their own they're choosing their own path, and it is a path that is full of strategic mistakes, even from their own point of view. And um, so we're about to see remarkable events on top of the events that we've seen today and in recent years, because this crisis isn't going away. It's a crisis of democracy. It's a crisis of people feeling alienated from their political institutions, from political parties. And, and as I say, there will be domestic consequences. And in and in the background of that, and I agree about the point about uh, look, I, I, it's my assumption that Keir Starmer will become the prime minister. The question now is, under what circumstances does he become prime minister, and in what condition? I mean, as I see it, I mean Keir Starmer is a, is a prime minister in waiting figure, right? Um, because you look at the polls recent by-election victories, people have to understand, I think, that historic pr processes play out in different registers. So it can absolutely be true that Keir Starmer is charging towards office on a very strong polling position, and at the same time, for different reasons, for reasons of history and historic attitudes to foreign policy, he's already losing his authority before he even gets in um, to office. And people need to understand that there are very powerful forces at play in the world system that make the increasing the, the contradictions of Western foreign policy more and more and more acute. So for several US presidents in a row now, uh, from Obama through Trump through to Biden, there has been a persistent attempt by the United States to pivot away from the Middle East and from Europe and towards the Pacific and containing China. The problem is, every time they try and make that pivot, something blows up. 
in another region of the world, and they have to tend to it. America was sucked back into Eastern Europe after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now it's being sucked back into the Middle East uh, over what's happening in, in Gaza. And this is the problem for a, a globally dominant state, an imperial state, um, which is finding its authority challenged in numerous parts of the world all at once because of the reality of emerging multipolarity. Um, so, you know, Western foreign policy in general is on a disastrous course and we are tied to it. We are shackled to the zombie of a declining American empire. Um, I mean, it's one thing to be in the state that the British Empire was during its period of decline when you're strategically managing away your international assets. Britain's in a terrible position now. We are shackled to an empire that's going to fight every inch to control as much as it can as it is forced into a retreat. And that's going to mean British taxpayers' money. It's going to mean it could well mean British lives thrown into the bargain, right? It means Britain's uh, reputation or what's left of it as an international state is constantly shredded in one fresh confrontation after another. And we should say, because it's apparently been totally forgotten, the Israeli assault on Gaza has basically killed the Ukrainian issue, right? I mean, most policymakers and increasingly noisy ones uh, are now coming out and admitting that the uh, Ukraine's uh, war effort is lost, right? So, you know, we're facing a future of defeat after defeat on the foreign policy front. Keir Starmer will have to bear this increasingly problematic situation. And as you say, there is no Chinese wall between foreign policy and domestic policy. These situations will increasingly detach large sections of the population from the sort of bipartisan elite uh, in this country. Um, so it's it's inane to say, but he's going to win an election. Elections don't solve problems in the world, right? Yes, there will be a change of figures at the top of a British state, but the problems will remain. The problems will remain. They will intensify indeed. Um, I mean, I think, look, your kind of analysis there of the position of um, the American state um, within the, the global system, I think, is is right. Um, but I think that makes it um, all the more dangerous. I mean, the world order, as we understand it, is in a period of uh, extreme volatility. I mean, this is before we add in the potential for uh, conflict bound up uh, with things like climate change, for example, where the battle for resources is going to, to intensify, where we're going to see huge flows of, of people moving from different parts of the world as they become less and less habitable. Um, it's clear that the institutions as they currently exist cannot meet these challenges. Um, and of course, we shouldn't remember that we're also talking about a whole bunch of states that are nuclear armed. Um, and I think we've almost forgotten the uh, the immense apocalyptic, whatever word you want to use, power um, of these nuclear weapons. And it only takes one incident uh, for that to set off a chain reaction of truly global historic proportions. So it's extremely, extremely difficult and complex, but in some ways it's quite simple. In some ways, what we're arguing for, and I think this is why um, there's been such a connection with, with ordinary people, we're saying, first of all, stop the fighting. So we want a ceasefire. 
right? Again, that's the most basic demand. We want political solutions, not military, not military solutions. Okay, we want democratic ones. We want a world in which the resources are owned and controlled collectively, democratically, not privatized by corporations who move in after powerful states have moved um, have moved people out of the way in order for them to be for resources to be privatized or whatever else. This is not you know how you're going to build a civilization, frankly. Um, and so this is the sort of thing that we need to be raising within this kind of within this kind of political environment. Wider socialist demands around how our societies run. It is interesting. I was thinking about this the other day. It is interesting that the most sustained and largest demonstrations um, haven't actually taken place over things like the cost of living crisis. They've taken place over a foreign policy issue, over the question of Palestine support. And in fact, if you go back to the movement against the Iraq war, which was definitively the biggest uh, political demonstration in British history of any kind, then I think this is a real point of contention for, for the British ruling class. They conceive of foreign policy as being something strictly uh, in the pantheon of elite interests, think tanks, the highest levels of the state. The idea that millions of ordinary people uh, across the world, across the West, should have the temerity to suggest that they know better than these great offices, so-called, of state over what to do about foreign policy is something that they can't accept. But what makes it even more difficult is that time and time again, over a period of decades, those people who have demonstrated have been proven correct and they have been left humiliated. So they despise the idea that people should be talking about foreign policy matters. And why shouldn't, why shouldn't we? You know, whose sons and daughters is it that get sent off in these wars? It's not people like Tony Blair's or David Cameron's or Sunak's or uh, Keir Starmer's. It's largely working class men and women who are sent off to fight and die in these, and die in these wars. So there are very profound domestic implications for what's going on here, linked to foreign policy questions. And I think more and more as this movement develops, people are going to start joining the dots. People are going to start saying, why is it that the same person who says that homelessness is a lifestyle choice is also arguing that we shouldn't be able to demonstrate over the question of Gaza? Why is it the same person, right, who wants to demolish public services, okay, comes back to become foreign secretary and is going to pursue a, a, a line over, over Gaza, which parrots the failed line uh, of Washington, and as we know, has already destroyed uh, Libya. People are going to make these connections. And that actually, I think, is in some ways an important phase of development because we have to start thinking, look, we can't put up with these people being in power. It's not just in our interests, it's in the planet's interests, it's in the, the interests of everyone that these wars are brought to an end. And the, I have to say, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, 
this will come and go. You know, this will come and go. In the end of the day, people don't really care about what happens on the other side of the world, and they, you know, they'll get back to normal and, and all that sort of thing. They're desperate for this get back to normal thing. Has it happened? Mm. Mm-hmm. Has it? I mean, is it? Can you see it going back to so-called normal? Yeah, I, I've thought this myself. Like we've had every year since 2016. Um, since the departure of David Cameron, I mean, that's part of what I enjoy about his return is that it's it's so uh, it's so neat. Do you know what I mean? He yeah. helped launch um, this sort of period of derangement. Here he is back, you know, seven years later, more than seven years later, and the 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 bin fire he left behind has melted down to almost nothing. That yeah. this this is not going away. It can't go away. Um, this is a crisis of not just of the British state, right? This is a global crisis, an era-defining crisis, because it marks the end, basically, of American uh, unipolarity. The world order that emerged in the late 1980s is dying. That's the situation, and that has ramifications at every single point in the system. When we talk about the end of, as we have a few times um, you know, around the COVID stuff, for example, around Brexit, around Trump, people have mentioned, you know, the end of neoliberalism, this somewhat kind of ephemeral phase. I think, in a sense, um, it's not useful to describe our situation, uh, our era, the era that basically began around about the time that you and I were born. I don't think I don't know how useful it is to think of it purely as a period of a kind of liberal economic orthodoxy. That's a very important part of it. But structurally, this is about a certain constellation of power in the West, um, and centrally, the position of the United States in the global in the global system. People need to understand um, that the the conditions which have dominated the lives of people my age and somewhat older are coming dramatically to an end. Um, and what we've seen since about twenty sixteen, I think, is. Uh, it's the tip of a very large iceberg. You're going to have to prepare ourselves for the fact um, that you know America will not be top dog in the way that it has been, and that's going to just set off so many other processes that rock a state like Britain, because Britain's a very much a second tier power, very much as we've said, tied to the prestige of the United States. Everything in in British politics is going to is going to change, and what makes that so explosive is what you've said about the caliber of state leadership. I mean, Suella Braverman, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, are these the people at the helm of the ship as it goes down? Um, it's a desperate situation. You know, I agree. Um, I think there are, you know, just just to slightly extend on this, right? I think there are a couple of theoretical points that are worth drawing out here. Um, It was quite fashionable um, towards the end of the 1990s and into the 2000s, um, where you might, you know, point to the kind of high watermark of American-led globalisation. It was fairly fashionable on the left to make the suggestion that the state is no longer an important actor in what's going on. What's actually important uh, is corporate power, right, and is corporations. And they have, in some sense, hijacked the state or have made the state superfluous. And that global institutions, um, whether they be the World Trade Organization, 
you know, the IMF, whatever you want to, European Union, they have come to replace the the nation state, right? Um, and I think we can see that that's that that's not the case. That states are absolutely central to the development of world events, and the power of states, the military force of states, is not uh, by any stretch of the imagination going off the agenda. Is coming right into the centre uh, of it. So I think it is important to kind of register some of these points that um, that we live in a in a world in which the United States, which we have to say reigns supreme still, okay, in terms of its military power, its economic power, and so on, but that a change is taking place that is going to affect that landscape in unpredictable ways. Um, there was a senior spokesperson for the G7, and this has been widely trailed, so people have probably seen it already, who said that we've lost the global south, that the global south are just not coming back after this, after what's going on in Gaza, um, adding to a whole series of, of, of other issues. And it is really striking, right, that when you see, you know, I was watching Hillary Clinton the other day, and she's sort of giving this talk about why there can't be a ceasefire, why it's not in uh, American interest to have a ceasefire, uh, Israeli interest to have a ceasefire, and all these kind of things. And seems completely sort of oblivious to the wider dimensions at play here. That we are a tripwire away from a very serious regional war, really a world war because it involves the United States and other NATO allies, right? Um, they have failed to learn anything. Now, ruling class projects, um, particularly in Britain, by the way, I would say, um, have been so successful because they have learned from mistakes, okay? They, they're a very well-schooled, traditionally, a very well-schooled group of people. Uh, learn it on, on history and on how their, uh, how their forefathers have dealt with um, with grave issues. And when it comes to foreign policy, they're just not willing to learn. Mm. They're just not willing to deviate from the course of action that, we'd, that they would take at any point in time uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, actually, you'd have to go back. I mean, if you think about American restraint on Israel, for example, I mean, Robert uh, uh, Reagan, for example, in the mid-1980s did. Right, there was there have been attempts at restraint. What you've seen now happen is that we have a situation in which the calls for restraint, I use that inverted commas, the slight divergences, subtle but important, that you can see over what the United States wants as an end game and what Netanyahu wants as an end game in Gaza, they're beginning to diverge, right? In quite a serious way. Mm. And it's too late. Mm. And so what they've done is that they've tethered themselves into this situation, which they're pretty unable to move out from. It's quite difficult to see where an off-ramp is now. Mm -hmm. So their failure to, to learn from recent history is causing them to make further and deeper and more profound mistakes. And we're seeing that happen right now. I mean, the diplomatic, just lastly on this, the diplomatic fallout from this is extremely serious. Now, sometimes this can be sort of washed to one side because people think, well, it doesn't really matter 
what the United Nations says, right? Because the Security Council called the, calls the shots and effectively the United States calls the shots. Okay, fine. I agree with that, right? But it's setting in play long-term dynamics around the international system and its institutions, which are going to gravely undermine American power in the world. And because of that, and this is where it gets dangerous, because it's undermining their diplomatic credibility, such as it ever existed, they will turn more and more to military means to control parts of the world system. And that is why this moment is so dangerous. It's so dangerous, obviously, and first and foremost, for those innocents in Gaza. Uh, but this is a moment of profound global uh, danger. And we have a leadership which is, uh, frankly, at sea. And uh, and it's going to be down to that other superpower, as we used to coin, coin it, which is the global anti-war movement. I agree. I think um, I think leadership was shown on the streets uh, in from from Glasgow to London and all over the world uh, on Saturday. These are the people thinking seriously about the the future of world civilization. Even um, thanks very much for coming on, uh, Jonathan, uh, and thanks to Conta's listeners for listening. We will, of course, have many more conversations like this. Uh, in the coming weeks and months of this movement uh, and its uh, struggle against what's happening in Gaza and against the political establishment. So, uh, Jonathan, thanks very much. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Contra Scott.